Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, I'm here with Tim Ingram. Tim's all the way from the UK, so it's really early in Edmonton, and I guess it's in the afternoon in the UK, so it's a good one. Tim, thanks for joining us today. Hey, no problem. Thank you for having us. First time I've done anything like this, so yeah, please go gently. <laughs> no, we'll be all right. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to have you on today. So like before we jump into it, so Tim, you're the principal consultant for MMI Thornton Thomas Setti, and you're the chair of the AMS slash one committee. Do you want to just give us an intro for what that committee does? Yeah, sure. Um, so AMS1, um, it, it fits into the overall ISO framework, really. So within ISO, there is a uh, committee called TC251. Um, and I'm guessing a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with the output of that, which is ISO 55000. So apologies for this. There's lots and lots of acronyms, but I, TC251 is responsible for the suite of asset management standards. Now, that is made up of representatives from national standards bodies from around the world. So for us in the UK, um, it's BSI. Um, and BSI has a group called AMS1 or committee, um, and that that committee is responsible for mirroring the activities that go on with TC251. So basically, we pull together the UK's view on uh, asset management and feed that into the overall technical committee. Um, within the technical committee, there's various working groups. Um, two probably of note at the minute are working group five, which are working on a new document, which is 55,010, which is around the alignment of financial and non-financial functions. And then working group seven, which is around... Um, document which we'll call 55,011, which is around guidance for policymakers uh, and how to apply asset management at a governmental level. So I've I've been in the committee for maybe six to 12 months. Um, so I can take zero credit for all the really good work that's gone on today, including the recent issue of 55,002. I've just come along at the end and sort of picked up the credit as it's all been issued. Um, but it, it, all the credit goes to the existing members, uh, the likes of Rhys Davis as the overall chair of TC251 and the previous chair of the UK, David McEwen. Does that give you a bit of an overview of what AMS1 is all about? Yeah, no, that's great. And I think a lot of people, at least listening, will be familiar with David and Reese. They're, they're pretty active in the community. So it's it's pretty cool to have you on, Tim. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
So I guess I I guess I wanted to a little get a, a, before we get into you know reliability blockchain. I wanted to get more of a background on you. So can you give us a dis, like what about you? Like how did you get your start in asset management and reliability? Well, I I started off uh, getting a mechanical engineering degree. And from there, I jumped into a systems engineering role at a facility called Sellafield in the UK. Now, that that systems engineering role is, in, in this context, was here are your operational systems and you're responsible for the maintenance and operations of those for the five to ten year look ahead. So it's what today could be called an asset manager in truth. Um now, Sellafield is one of the, um, it is the largest nuclear site in the UK. Uh, it combines decommissioning facilities from from the Cold War activities um, through production facilities, and it was the home of the world's first uh, commercial nuclear reactor. For my sins, I worked on one of the production facilities, so we were making um, high-tolerance fuels to go inside nuclear reactors. Um, very challenging environment. Um but as a mechanical engineer, I was responsible for a little bit of mechanical equipment, but predominantly I was responsible for things like visual recognition systems and automated quality functions. Um, so at that point, very early in my career, I was picking up equipment that I didn't really have a technical understanding of, which forced me a little bit further away from the equipment um, and more into the asset management function. Because I think quite often as asset managers, we need to know enough about the equipment, but not necessarily all the detail. And it's more about looking at the whole and looking at the balance. Um, and I was really lucky from there to move um, out of the sort of manufacturing environment into the consultancy environment. And uh, I've I've worked across a, a number of sectors from defence to nuclear to uh, infrastructure, oil and gas, um, and through to even some really interesting facilities like um, the Square Kilometre Array, which is, is currently being developed, which is going to be a, a world-leading telescope with the world's biggest supercomputer and applying those same asset management principles into into those domains. I know from um, some of your previous podcasts, the, some of your listeners have been quite familiar with the likes of the integrated logistics support, RAMS analysis, um, logistics support analysis. And I was lucky enough to work with the UK MLD in those areas, but also take those really good tools and techniques back into um, the likes of the nuclear arenas and oil and gas arenas, where it's not predominantly used. Um, and from there, I've, I've been quite lucky to be supporting the likes of the UK regulator on trying to establish good practice in asset management. Um, and recently, I've been out with the International Atomic Ed Energy Agency, uh, which is effectively the nuclear arm of the UN, to help them establish asset management guidance for the world's uh, nuclear power operations. So hopefully that gives you a bit of an overview. Yeah, for sure. I, I don't like I have never worked in nuclear, but I used to be part of the Seymour group at University of Toronto, and we had a guy on there from the Pickering nuclear plant uh, just outside of Toronto. It's probably about an hour away. And he was, he did a presentation once and they talked about setting at least their PMs two years in advance. Is that a, is that a thing? Yeah, it can be. Um, there's, there's a massive diversity across the nuclear um, domain. So on a, a power station, it, it's a very rigorous 
process because taking the reactor down and undertaking the maintenance takes a lot of time. It's very costly as well, obviously, um, the, the lost power generation. And the likes of APRI um, establish some really good boundaries that you, you should be, I think it's 14-week cycles as a minimum, that you should be establishing your, your maintenance and regimes 14 weeks ahead. And each week you get closer, you, you make them more and more and more refined through execution. Um, but you should know what you're doing well ahead of that. In some other areas, such as decommissioning, it's completely different. Um, you can be dealing with an, an asset you don't really understand, maybe sat in a, a silo where you, you can't access it, you can't understand the makeup, um, and it's something that's maybe 50, 60, 70 years old. And you're trying to predict how this is going to perform. So you then end up building new facilities just to try and maintain the existing facilities. Um, and trying to predict the, the maintenance on these things can be very, very difficult, very reactive. So there's, there's a lot of variety. <laughs> no, I just, I remember sitting at that presentation and I was, uh, I was in mining at the time and I was just like, we can barely plan for tomorrow, no matter two years from now. <laughs> yeah. And, and oddly, the, the community tends to look at itself and I think it's not planning very well sometimes, but actually there's, there's some fantastic stuff that goes on there. <laughs> so Tim, I mean, you know, we've been, we've been talking for a while and you've mentioned that you started a website called Reliability Blockchain if people are interested to check it out, reliabilityblockchain.com. Do you want to give us an intro on what that's about? Yeah, so um, it, it, I think it's quite a, a simple concept, but it's, it's possibly worlds apart from where we are at the moment. And the idea is that we try and develop a free, decentralized, pan-industry resource of reliability information, which is owned by the community that uses it. Um, so the best thing I could probably make a parallel to is imagine Wikipedia, but for reliability data. So that's the basic concept. No, that's really cool. And, and I mean, I had only most reliability data, it seems to be people hold it kind of to a standard and they hold it kind of privately to themselves. The only real website that I used to check out all the time was Paul Behringer's website, um, I believe it's down now, but yeah, that was the only one I've really ever seen. Have you seen any other ones? Um, not of this this type or this idea, um, I, but I, I don't necessarily profess to be an expert in all the, the data that's out there. Um, and things are moving at such a pace that there could be <laughs> there could be things popping up all the time. So I, I guess for people listening, you know, like even myself, like I only know kind of a small amount about what blockchain is. Do you want to give us like an introduction to what is blockchain and why would it be useful for the reliability community? Yeah, well, I, I tell you what, if I wind, wind back to, to how this crystallized in my head, it might give a bit, a bit of good context. It was one of those mornings where I was walking the dog, 6 a.m., listening to an audio book, um, which just so happened to be about blockchain, and trying to plan my day ahead and, and the challenges that I faced because we were trying to work with a client who had based uh, what was pretty much half a billion pounds worth of investment on the reliability of a single item, which was a uh, commercial off-the-shelf item, COTS item, which was being placed into a hazardous environment where no one really knew how it was going to, to react. So 
we've been spending a lot of time putting trying to understand what the OEM thought, what our experience told us, what the likes of data books, the, the likes of NPRD, EPRD, Reader, um, a lot more that I'm sure everyone's familiar with. Um, and we have predictions from the likes of the OEM from anywhere from sort of 30 to 120 years potential life. And parts count predictions that were coming out maybe two to five years and, and LFE that was actually telling us we were down to six months maybe at the lowest end. Uh, so we had this fantastically diverse range of data, which was saying somewhere from six months to 120 years is the mean time between failure. <laughs> There's half a billion pounds worth of investment effectively sanctioned off the back of a, an acceptable number. Um, on f- as we started to present this data and work it through with the client, the OEM data instantly was just dismissed because it was orders of magnitude greater than we'd ever imagine. Um, and they didn't really understand the environment in truth. So we, we couldn't take too much credibility from that. As we started to look through the LFE, there was an overriding principle that the client basically said, well, we know about all those failures. And say this was project number six. We, we're going to design out all the issues that we had in the previous five projects. They couldn't grasp that on project five, they'd done exactly the same thing and something else had caught them out on that one. Um, so they, this idea that they were perfect and that they designed everything out was was lulling them into a false sense of security. So the one thing I took from that data was I've got no idea how this piece of equipment is going to perform. And this is, I think, one of the big dangers around reliability data where people tend to drive it to a single point value. It will last five years, it will last 30 years. When in truth, when we talk amongst ourselves as reliability engineers, we know we're talking about more of a probability of, um, of something happening. So actually, we're, we're pretty sure it might happen within a 10-year range or a five-year range, but we don't have much certainty. But the Chinese whispers as you move through organizations turn that into something rather definitive. Um, so in this setting, what I tried to do is get the client to look a lot more at the maintenance aspects and try to focus them in on, well, if this does fail, can you maintain it? If we can't predict when it's going to fail, can we maintain it? And they came back to, well, what are we basing the reliability on? And the only thing that they'd let through was the data books. And I think there was this air of confidence around a data book because it was a physical entity that they could lay their hands on that's been approved. The fact that some of the components within, say, a motor, it might actually only be one motor as a representative point in a sample, um, which is potentially got less statistical significance than the LFE they have, where they've got six examples. Um, and this was just a common common issue I've seen time and time again and something struck me and it, it was that ironic point where I was bent down picking up the dog poop while I stood out with the dog and just thought there's got to be a better way to this we can't keep going through the same stuff over and over again and that audiobook I was listening to started talking around the, the benefits of blockchain and things like trust and decentralization and, and just a different way of doing things and that gave me a bit of a thought, well, what, what if we could do the same as Wikipedia's done? Um, I mean, if you go back to the 90s, the concept of someone walking into an office and saying, right, I, 
I want to create a new encyclopedia and I want everyone to contribute to it and I want it to be free and anyone can edit it, anyone can improve it or add their own topics and subjects and they can do with it as they want and it will self-regulate. I think back in the 90s, you'd have been laughed out of any room that you presented that to. But now, can we imagine a world without the likes of Wikipedia? And I think we're in the same kind of place where once the likes of Encyclopedia Britannica were were the go-to resource. Now we look to other sources, crowdsourced resources, um, but we've got this nervousness of pinning significant business decisions on something that has been crowdsourced. Now, I did see something that back in 2005, the Journal of Nature did a study on the comparison between Encyclopedia Britannica and Wikipedia. And what they found was that actually it was a similar level of serious errors. And that's back in 2005. We imagine how much that that data resource within Wikipedia has evolved. It's it's only going to be improving uh, as we move forward. And I mean, change is inevitable. But what I see here is crowdsourcing that reliability data has got to be the future from my point of view. Oh, there, there's a lot of good stuff that you just talked about. I mean, let's 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 dive right into it. So the first thing, you know, you're talking about, you know, encyclopedias versus Wikipedia. We've seen that across the board with a ton of different things, right? Like in elementary school, they used to say, oh, you have to learn how to do times tables because you'll never have a calculator in your pocket. Well, not only do we have a calculator in our pocket, we also have a video camera, a camera, a, a little thing that can call anywhere else in the world and internet access. So it's like we seem to put the the past on a pedestal and it might not be it might not be the right decision. So there's a lot there that I think that like moving into the 21st century, like we become more open at least slowly we're we're becoming more open as a culture absolutely um and i think the way that we use that technology it, it, it's obviously it's changing rapidly and and as each generation comes along they use the technology in a different way as it evolves and i think this is one of those areas where it comes back to decision making and if we think about asset management my my summation of asset management is just it's about decision making the entire management system and everything you put into it is about making an informed decision. And typically, the people who are making those informed decisions tend to be reasonably high up the food chain. Um, let's be frank, probably a bit older, so maybe not adapting quite as quickly. And we need to find ways of getting confidence for them and confidence for the likes of regulators in, in trying to pull significant decisions on safety um, around a crowdsourced piece of data. It, it, it's a psychological challenge it really is but i think you can get much better much better data much better confidence if we um if we can move that way oh yeah i agree and, and like for people listening you know probably about i guess it'd be about a month ago um we did a podcast on decision making risk and uncertainty and there's a lot there's a lot there to talk about and and you know like tim you're right you know, asset management's about decision-making. To be honest, so is reliability. So is just business in general. 
Like we need to be better at evaluating what decisions are, what's the upside, what's the downside, and then what's kind of our expected decision, like what's our expected return on the decision. And those those things I think, well, people do poorly as a whole, but we need to be better at going forward. Absolutely. And I think it comes back to the way that current reliability data is used. So if you say, and this is not knocking anything that's there because it's it's got us to where we are but say something like a reader or 217f you 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 open the book you find what you need and you generally get to a data point and that's what you take forward if we have a big enough data set if we understand across different industries how equipment performs instead of looking at a data point we can look at a distribution we can understand what its characteristics are like we can start to pick out how that might impact in the environment that we're trying to take this piece of equipment it may not have been used there before so the more data we can get we can possibly try and get those business decisions to a different place we can get them so that they're informed on a probability scale or informed on a distribution that we think we're going to be somewhere here that that when you're trying to operate say between one and ten hours we really don't think there's going to be a failure but as soon as you go past 15 hours up to about 50 then you've got a really good chance of a failure and you can make much much more informed decisions that way i think if we've got that big data set oh i mean there's there's no doubt about that i mean i used to work uh doing cost benefit analysis in like large infrastructure projects and we used to give a you know, it, they called it an ROI, but it also included, you know, environmental benefits, social benefits, some other of that stuff. And we used to give, they called it an S-curve. So the S-curve would tell you essentially your worst case scenario all the way to your best case scenario. And then it gave you kind of a distribution of what you could expect. And I think it's really useful for people to look at that. Like I know people are are poor at looking at a range in general but if you give them the this is what we expect as our median answer but these are the worst case and best case scenarios then people can kind of have a feel for what's acceptable absolutely and it all comes back to risk tolerance and sometimes especially if you can see that picture it's your gut isn't it it's that it's something more overriding than a clinical decision yeah absolutely so i i guess let's for blockchain itself, like what is blockchain and how does that, like, obviously they don't need blockchain to do Wikipedia. So why would it be beneficial to be using blockchain and reliability? Okay. So just to put it out there, I'm not an expert in blockchain. I, I probably know enough to just sound dangerous and apologies to anyone who's listening who really understands the technology and if I use any of the, the terms inappropriately. Um But one thing I think in terms of why we might need um, something like a blockchain rather than just a a website is the same reasons as for the likes of the cryptocurrencies. The consequence of losing that information or the information being hacked is possibly quite um, significant. If someone were to hack Wikipedia, no one's really going to die. There's not really business or there shouldn't be huge business decisions at the moment made off the content of Wikipedia. Um, when we look to the, the business decisions that we want to make within um, asset management or, or safety, for example, we, we want to have a level of trust in what has been developed. Now, 
in its most simplest form, blockchain is just a database. It's just the way that that database is constructed is different. So for a standard database, I think of it like something like Excel, just like a, a spreadsheet or a series of spreadsheets which interconnect. Whereas blockchain is a set of incremental differences uh, or blocks. And each of those blocks um, link together to form a chain. Now, as each block or change is made to the database, there is a, a little hash that is generated. So there's a, a mathematical formula that's, that's processed on the block to give a unique identifier of, of the block, which is then incorporated into the next block. So as you, in, as you add each block, there's an intrinsic link between every single one that has gone before. So that's important because if you wanted to change one of the incremental steps, it means you have to change every single subsequent step to pull that change through or you'll get an error. Now, that can be quite strong. You can add uh, cryptography on top to make it stronger. But the bit that really takes this up to a different level in terms of security is the fact that the database is distributed. Now, what that means is everyone in the network holds a copy of the database. And I think from a reliability point of view in terms of ownership, this this really makes a big difference that there wouldn't have to be a single centralized body holding the information, charging people for the information, because we actually turn the responsibility for managing the information back out to the community that holds it. Now, this network is made up of as many nodes as you need it to, or as many organizations or people supporting it. But there is cross-checking of the data. So if someone comes to make a change to the ledger, all the nodes are impacted and everyone gets a change. So there's constant checking across the blockchain. So you need, I think it's over 50% of the nodes to read a different uh, number. So if you were going to change one of the blocks in the chain, you'd have to change the same blocks across the entire chain and all the subsequent blocks instantaneously to make the change happen. Um, so this means, I mean, by current methods, current standards, it's probably classed as unhackable. Um, I'm sure that probably will change as computing power increases, but it's a very, very, it, it, it would take a hell of a lot to try and get to that point of hacking it. So it gives you a very trustworthy source. Now, on top of that, you can also have visibility of um, of who's making the changes. Now, it might need to be anonymized in a certain way so that a, a certain company may not want to have their name put forward because it, it, it this information, I think, as you alluded to before, can be quite sensitive. So we, we're asking people to, to wash their dirty laundry in public and tell us when their equipment's failing. So there needs to be probably some level of anonymity. But you should be able to see some, um, some clarity as to who's making the changes and how they've been formed. And to me, one of the best ways we can think about this is that an OEM could come forward and say, I've got a pump say and this is how i think it will perform and as we move through time we should be able to see the users of that pump tell us how long it's actually lasting so we can actually start to see a a correlation or a trend as to the actual performance versus the predicted obviously that takes quite a long time to pull together but you should be able to see how it is built up and because you've got the transparency of how it's being built up it should be a lot less um it should provide that level of trust that 
a website where someone can just go in and change little bits here and there, you, you may not have that same level of trust because you could think, I don't know, the manufacturer is just going to flood the um, database with information on their pump um, because they want to make it look like the best pump in the world. But in order for them to do that, they'd have to go to a huge amount of trouble. I'm not sure I've made a lot of sense there, but hopefully it gives, that's, that's my understanding of blockchain anyway. I guess the, the fundamental question is right, right now, like a lot of companies that have that data, one is they keep it pr- proprietary specifically for themselves, or two is they use it as a tool or an asset to sell to people. How do we get them to join this community or how do we get them to sort of buy into this idea? I wish I had all the answers to this because it would make my life a lot simpler in terms of trying to get this off the ground. Um, but it all comes back to value. It's got to come to value to um, what I've kind of classed as the three types of user at the moment. You've you've got the OEM, you've got the end user of the equipment, and then potentially regulators as well. From the manufacturer's point of view, that's probably the easiest to, to tackle. If they can have a more informed view of what equipment they're selecting or how the equipment in their um, portfolio is actually performing in the field and for other organizations that can really improve that decision making we've talked about quite a few times so i think the value to end users in terms of gathering the information is it is there Um, in terms of putting their information out there got to make sure it's done in a way that protects them but also helps the wider community and I think the only way we can do that is by start finding a um, an industry that is interested, that can see the benefits either in terms of productivity or, or safety. Um, so the likes of oil and gas with a reader, there's some precedence there around the industry coming together to, to pull together reliability information because they recognize that each individual organization doesn't have the resources to properly predict this because you need big data sets. In terms of the OEM, I think there's some some really powerful things that the OEM can get out of this. The first is, if you're going to be one of the first to market to stick your neck out and say, I'm really proud of my device. This is how reliable it is. It's fantastic. I can see some organizations actually standing behind that and being really proud and using that almost as a badge of honor that their information is there. If you want to see it, go and see it. You could even get to the point where you can start to embed into the blockchain um, actual documents. So you could embed, say, for a safety critical sensor, um, a SIL analysis, software integrity level analysis, to understand so that if a um, an organisation who wanted to use that in a safety uh, environment, they could actually buy off the chain straight from the manufacturer the the underpinning data rather than doing it themselves um there's the thing that really excites me about all this is is pretty much nothing that we've talked about yet it's the possibilities of where the data could go so things like a little piece of metadata on the side of this for the oem could be immensely powerful like did a human cause this failure so if we can understand what percentage of failures are caused by humans and how that is impacting the overall reliability. What you might see is that an OEM is sticking their hand up and saying, I think we're going to have an MTBF of 1,000 hours. But the reports coming back from the field average out, I don't know, maybe 500 hours. 
if you can start to split out where the humans caused the problem, what you might find is that actually the intrinsic performance is maybe at 2,000 hours, but the human performance is, is somewhere down at maybe 200 hours and it's dragging the average down significantly. The OEM can then take that information and they can say, okay, well, why in the field are the humans knackering up my equipment? What can I do as an OEM to improve the maintainability of this item? How can I push my product forward better? And that can then hopefully push industries on and can make a massive difference because at the moment, I know OEM's hands are really tied apart from either um, contracts to maintain equipment or um, Spurs contracts. They just haven't got a clue how things are performing. And quite often when they're not performing well, they just don't get any repeat orders. They can assume, oh, so everything's going fantastic because no one's needed to order a spur when in fact they've changed to a different manufacturer or a different um, supplier. So there's a lot there. And I think in terms of the regulator, if they can start to see the trust, if they can start to see the amount of data that's there that they can interrogate, that's there for them to actually look at and dig into and understand, then any manufacturer, any end user or manufacturer using that data They've got a yardstick on which to know, well, this is how it's performing and, and it's in a trustworthy source and, and so on. Um, I say I don't have all the answers, but I think there's some real great benefits if people come together. I definitely see the benefits there for me coming from kind of the industries that I come from, at least in mining, most of the OEM manufacturers also do sort of the service contracts for the equipment. So I would see them being very hesitant of putting their data out there because typically they're the ones using it and benefiting off of it personally. However, for the end user, I mean, obviously as an end user myself, like obviously the more information that you have relative to, you know, your equipment, the better decisions you can make. So you're just happier in general. Absolutely. My kind of last question for you here, and, and it's really, I think it's a tough question, but how do we like get this off the ground? Like, how do we start to implement this? Like if people are listening and they're like, you know, I have some data, I'd be willing to share it with this community. How do we get this off the ground? Well, probably one side of this is I'm happy to listen to anyone who's, who's actually an expert in blockchain technology who can help and is willing to, to try and push things forward. I think for me, there's a huge amount of effort already going in this environment. And probably one of the first things we need to do is get some people sat around together. So if we look at the likes of um, ISO 14224, it gives a lot of really good ideas of how oil and gas want to structure their data and structure their information. If this is going to be truly sort of pan-industry, we can't just use that. We need to use um, some information structures that are going to work across industry. Um, now, it, it's quite lucky. Um, I've just started to be involved with um, a project, I think that's going to be called InfraAir, but it's, it's about asset information requirements. And what it's trying to do is to articulate as part of, or as an evolution out of the um, BIM uh, modeling processes in 19650 and PAS 1192. What it's trying to do is get a um, definitive set or framework of information that can be used through life. So as you come out of the, the BIM modeling process in the built environment, having an asset information uh, set requirements that can 
build through life and that can sustain through life. That could be a really useful source to, to pull on. But I think getting people sat around to understand what the data framework needs to be, what information we need to make the decision, gives us that platform and that understanding to to build the data. Because I think if we run before we can walk in terms of um, gathering information, it'll probably fall foul before it starts because it might be made really well for manufacturing, but then it's completely useful for defence. So I think there's a couple of years of, of bringing people together. And I'd say probably in a similar way to the likes of Paz 55 that turned into 55,000, starting off with a uh, an early standard of some description to try and get this framework in, into a suitable position. And in that time, the blockchain technology itself will come on because at the moment, blockchain is it's almost reserved for the, and there's no offence meant by this, but sort of the computer geeks of the world because you, you have to code it personally pretty much at the moment. Um, so the interfaces and the equivalent of like a website to dial into or a front page just don't exist. So we need to understand what we need from that interface to then get someone to help us build it. Um, so hopefully over the next couple of years, that's perfect timing then that we can hit the ground running when the technology is in the right place to help us build that chain and, and, and move it forward. No, I, I agree 100% on that. It's it's like right now, I don't imagine a lot of our listeners are, or even like I'm not even using it myself or using much blockchain technology, but there's a huge potential for it for sure going forward. Yeah, definitely. And I, I scribbled something down before I came on the call, but there's a there's a quote from John F. Kennedy that I think is quite pertinent, which is, there's costs and risks to a program of action, but there are far less than the long-range risk and costs from comfortable inaction. And I think that's exactly where we find ourselves at the minute. Yeah, no, I really, I'm a re- really huge fan of evaluating risk of doing nothing. I think that a lot of people, when they make decisions, they ignore that. So they, they look at a decision as, you know, I'm either going to turn left or I'm going to turn right. There's no, I'm just going to stay here. And there usually is a very high risk of just staying there. Absolutely. Um, and it's hard when we're, we're talking about an entire industry. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I'm not suggesting that so two years from now, we can turn on a switch, blockchain's there, and we ignore everything that's gone in the past. Um, what I see this being is more of a another data point, another resource to stick into the mix that we can understand against the other good sources that we have, whether that be an internal organizational database or whether it be the likes of NPRD, Eureka, EPRD, whatever it might be. Um, but, but it should complement what, what else is going on. And, and then eventually, like all that data should be part of the blockchain, right? Like I see that as just more data that would be included. That's where I'd love it to get to. Um, and I think if this is where if the community truly owns it, then it will. But then obviously there's um, some barriers to that. There's, there's a lot of resources that go into collecting that data. Um, so it's one of those things that could be industry disrupting and it would be painful for a lot of people um, and what we want to do is not make this journey shouldn't be painful for the people who are 
really helping everyone by pulling together these data handbooks that it stands. But we need to find a way of bringing them on the journey in the right way um, and what they can do to help. And there's, there could be a fantastic market off the side of this kind of technology for data analytics because the, the, having that your data set and understanding and then being able as computers develop further to look into the physics of failure the potential for this could be could be huge but we've got to work together as that community yep no the the community thing is huge so no it's a really interesting discussion today so i guess before we get you off here you know do you have anything to plug like if anyone wants to reach out to you they should follow you on linkedin obviously tim ingram do you want them to check out reliabilityblockchain.com? Like, are you going to be at any conferences? Do you want to give us a, an overview here? Yeah, sure. So um, on reliabilityblockchain.com, um, there is, if you, I think you've got to provide just an email address, but there's a white paper on how to imp- how we're thinking of implementing this. So it goes into a lot more detail around um, how we get off the ground from where we are now and tries to put a bit more context on the bottom. Um, beyond that, as part of AMS1 and the UK Mirror Committee, we've set up a LinkedIn group. So especially if you're based in the UK, um, come along, join join that group and get involved because we, we're using that to try and make the UK Mirror Committee more visible, trying to demonstrate our um, the, the key, key areas of focus for us at the moment, um, which are around trying to get some design guidance on asset management, how to get from the perfect white paper blank solution to the perfect asset manageable facility and bringing together lots of different disciplines to do that um, looking at supply chain and trying to improve guidance around that and mentioned it already but visibility so come and join that linkedin group uh, so if you look for uk asset management committee uh, to tc251 you should find it there um, and in later in March, around 26, depending on when this goes out, or it might have already happened, um, I'll be providing a keynote speech at the Designing for Reliability conference uh, called Designing from Right to Left and Asking Why um, at the Institute of Mechanical Engineers down in London in the UK. Awesome. No, that's that's pretty cool. I believe it's going to be out probably on the 26th the same. So if you're listening and you're in London, check that out. If not, uh, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no problem no tim uh, you know thanks for coming on and i think like we'll probably have to have you back on you know later this year to dig more into the blockchain because i think we only scratched the surface yeah absolutely hey, thank you for having me i think there's there's some really interesting things going on and we've got um, a, a couple of meetings going on later this well, i think it's next month now um about trying to bring together lots of key disciplines the likes of safety and reliability, systems engineering, uh, the list's kind of too long to name right now, um, but on how to build that guidance for the design side. And I, I think that would be really interesting to come back and share that and where we get to with it. Absolutely. And if you need any help, like pulling together the reliability community, definitely let me know. I can put it out on this podcast or on LinkedIn and we'll we'll see what we can do for you. No, fantastic. And anything on the blockchain, just more, the more people come together, the better place this will be. I agree. And, the you know, the, the reliability community has been really great. So I, I have no complaints from my end. And I think that we're, we work really well together as a community. So I, I think the, there's something here and maybe some people listening, they'll reach out to you to see if they can be a part of it. Yeah. And I mean, hats up. 
to yourself, Rob. I mean, for for getting this podcast out there, giving people a chance to kind of talk, and it's it's a great thing. So keep it going. <laughs> I will be. That's for sure. No, I appreciate you coming on, Tim. Brilliant. Thank you for having me.